last week we were on John uh, 12, 20 uh, through 33. And there we saw where the Greeks or Gentiles came wanting and seeking out to Jesus. And that was in contradiction or almost you say juxtaposition to the Pharisees and Jewish leaders earlier who wanted to have nothing to do with Jesus at all. And they're seeking to kill him. And when the Gentiles, these Greeks come to Jesus, it triggers uh, this monologue, you might say, about his coming death and uh, crucifixion and that he is going to be crucified and that all the world is going to come to him. So even though we have uh, the Greeks, they, we don't hear their question, we hear Jesus' answer. And so it has most likely then, we can figure from his answer, their question has to do something to the effect of, what about us? Uh, are you the Jewish Messiah? Then what does that mean for us? And he says, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. There is going to be this death, and he will draw all men to himself. Not meaning all universalism, where everyone is going to him, or everyone ends up in heaven in the end, but all as in not just the Jews. It is, he is going to be opening this up to all the Gentiles as well. And that's what we began to look at last week. Uh, we looked at how Satan is going to be cast out. Jesus said, when he is lifted up, that's the Satan is going to be cast out, and what that exactly means is Satan alive and active still? And of course, we would acknowledge yes. We looked over in Ephesians chapter two how that is the case still, but also that he is cast out. So, in what way is Satan cast out? There's a couple of cross references. The primary one we looked at is at Revelation twenty verse three that Satan is cast out or locked up in such a way that he is no longer able to deceive the nations. Whereas prior, we look at the Old Testament, we see entire nations that have been deceived by Satan. There is something that happens on the cross, and all this is tying in with the Greeks coming to Jesus, where now Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations, all right? So there was a lot there in that sermon last week, and don't have time to review it all. But today, let's go into verse 34. And let's go through verse 43 today. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful time to gather together, to love on one another, to get to know one another, Lord, fellow brothers and sisters with Christ in common, the same salvation uh, brought from all over the place. You have brought us together as this local church uh, to, to love you and to love each other and to hold each other accountable and to encourage each other in this life. We thank you, God, for this time. Help us today to focus on your word and to focus on the lessons that are here for us. Uh, we submit our beliefs to the teaching of your word. We acknowledge that you are an authority, of course, over us, but that your word is an authority over our opinions as well. Help us to submit to you by submitting to your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you would look back at verse 34, verse 34. All right, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, last week we went through verse 33, and I want to go back to verse 33 just to kind of set up the context for that. But if you look at verse chapter 12, look at verse 33. Uh, let me find my place here. 
and he, oh, verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. All right, so now the crowd answers him. He tells them that he is going to be lifted up. Uh, what does that mean? The term lifted up, and they would acknowledge that at that time, if, if, if they knew that that was a slain term, uh, another way of describing being put to death by the cross. So they, they acknowledge that he is the son of man, but yet he's going to be lifted up. He's going to die on the cross. This doesn't make sense. And as we've noted before, they piece together their idea of who they want the Messiah to be. And they are prone to pick the victory passages and the, the, the very positive passages of prophecy of the Old Testament without putting together the suffering servant passages and the death passages and the death prophecies of the Old Testament. So here we kind of see this happening again. Uh, look at verse 34. Uh, they say we've heard from the law. And what is he speaking of here? That word law is used in multiple ways. You always have to look at what it means in context. Sometimes it only means the first few books of the Bible. Uh, but here it simply means what, all, what we would refer to as the entirety of the Old Testament, uh, the law. So it's all of it together. Some places, I think we'll look at one today, it can be divided up into the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, but here, when you say see just law written like it is now, most likely they're meaning the entire Old Testament. So they say, you know, how can this be? You say the son, you're, you're the son of man, you're also going to die. How can such a thing be? Because the law says that the son of man is going to last forever. So this is their big dilemma. Uh, and then this is not making sense to them. Just earlier, Jesus had come in riding on the donkey, Palm branches down, and what were they chanting? Uh, well, one thing was obvious, they, was, they were yelling out, Hosanna, which means, Save now we pray. And they were calling him the great deliverer. And from that, we, we, we recall only two times in Jewish history we know of such a thing happening. It's not even in the Bible for us, it's in the book versus St. Maccabees. But after uh, Jerusalem was set free, the one who had free, the military leaders came back into Jerusalem and they laid the palm branches and laid a young out Hosanna to him. And so here we see them doing the same to Jesus. So when Jesus enters in, they see him as the Savior, the Messiah, but it's a very earthly Savior. It's a very, he's a very earthly deliverer. They are expecting him to deliver them again from Roman occupation because Rome had had Jerusalem. So they're expecting this, this me right now, right here, uh, meet my needs Savior. But Jesus is much more than that. So they were yelling out things as Jesus came in in a good way, saying Hosanna. Others were saying Son of David, we found out as well. Uh, others were saying Hosanna to the highest. And all these, these are true statements. And they're even calling him Son of David. So they're giving him lots of messianic titles, but yet they're redefining them at the same time. So here we find this again. Uh, the major problem that we see that they're having with him is they're seeing him as the Messiah figure, seeing him as the Son of Man, but yet he said he's going to be lifted up, then said he's going to die. So how do they respond to the news that Jesus is going to be lifted up? Uh, disbelief. This goes against their definition of who the Messiah is. And, and this, is, this is constantly what we have to do even still to this day. If you have an opinion, if you have a belief, uh, how is it determined to be true or false? Where is your authority in life? And if, if you have Jesus, God, the Word in the flesh, the ultimate authority right there in front of them, but they have their own opinion about what the Messiah should accomplish. Uh, so we see that it's obviously going to be different than what they want. Now before we judge them too harshly, we're going to look at a couple of things. Uh, look, I have a couple of these up here, a couple of them you'll, you'll look for as well. Uh, but 2 Samuel 7, 16 and 17, I just want to show you a couple of passages where they're deriving this from, that the Son of Man is supposed to last forever. Uh, that Christ, the Son of Man, is, is as a kingdom that never goes away. He is king forever, and no one is powerful enough to take his, his crown away from him, right? 
a couple of places we look to. Second uh, Samuel 7, 16 through 17. This is the prophecy that Nathan gave to David. And he says, In your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So he's affirming to David that David's offspring is going to have a house and a kingdom that will be made sure forever. A throne that will be established forever. And they were applying that to right now in Jerusalem. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of Man. This is the Son of David. And they're pulling from these prophecies. They knew the Messiah had to come from the Son of David. That's why you have the genealogy there at the beginning uh, in the Gospels. They knew that. They're partnering that with this. This must be him. His kingdom is going to last forever. And then Jesus says, no, I'm about to go and die. And it's like, what? What's going on? What, what happened? And I thought you were the son of David. Uh, look elsewhere. We looked at this several times lately. We look over at Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 13 through 14. Daniel 7 verse 13 through 14. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. As we've noted, the most common way that Jesus refers to himself is not the Messiah, it's not the Christ, it's not I am the son of David, but that I am the son of man. And so that pulls from this Daniel chapter 7 passage, and there's a lot involved in that title. Uh, here we see it, look at verse 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Here it is. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So what do we gather from this passage? Of course, Jesus is pulling his title, his name, I am the Son of Man. He talks about himself being the Son of Man more than any other title. And this Son of Man is one who comes before the Ancient of Days, who would be God the Father. Daniel sees him like a Son of Man. There's something different here, right? God the Son has not always had a body. God the Son put on flesh. He became incarnate, truly God, truly man. He takes that dies on the cross, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, and Daniel sees, here's one like a son of man. But yet you have a man before God, but he's receiving a kingdom that is forever, a throne that is forever, and all people and nations are going to worship him. So we see here that the, the combination of humanity and deity. Who is that? Jesus Christ. That's the only one that that could be, right? So here we have... These things, he has dominion. Look at verse 14. An everlasting kingdom uh, which shall not pass away. A kingdom that shall not be destroyed. So when the, the crowd begins to say, yes, you are the son of man. You are the son of David. And they're combining these things. Uh, Jesus still has to fix their theology. They are seeing glory before the cross. They're putting all these things together, which they're, they are true, but yet not yet, right? So they're, they're uh, some people would say a bit technical term, the over-realized eschatology, all right? They're combined, reaching out and pulling all these things back to the here and now, but not waiting on them to be fulfilled through time. Um, Jesus says he is the son of man. Uh, but he is, he is the Christ. They are still using some of the same technology. Did they have, or same uh, terminology, did they have the combination of Christ and Son of Man wrong? So we'll look at that for a moment. Did they have them wrong? Uh, and we find out, no, they, they had it right. So they, they, the question is, then who is the Son of Man? So you said you are the Son of Man, but you're about to be lifted up. You're going to die. So now they're like, wait a minute, we had combined Christ and Son of Man, but the Son of Man lasts forever. So then who is the Son of Man? So you still see this disbelief, this confusion within their theology. Um, 
it was not just the unbelieving crowd, but even the disciples also struggled with this. We, we know that they would, they would take in some truths and it took longer for other truths to, uh, to resonate, to find a home. After Jesus had died on the cross, uh, two different places there in Luke 24, almost the same thing happens. Luke 24, 25 through 27. If you want to turn over there with me, we'll look at two passages in Luke 24. Where we find that the disciples uh, had a hard time understanding all of this as well. Early on, they wanted to be right there on the right hand and left hand of Jesus. And uh, one of that earthly kingdom right here and right now. They wanted everything to be just right. Uh, at the present time for them. But Jesus has to keep telling them, no, it's for greater purposes I have come. I've come to save people from their sins. How do you do that? By dying for their sins. Uh, Luke 24, 25 through 27. This is that famous account on the road to Emmaus. The disciples that are unnamed are distraught that Jesus has been put to death. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears with them, somehow incognito. They don't recognize who he is. Uh, but look at, I'm just kind of pulled the, the core nugget out of this passage here. Look at 25 to 27. Because then he said, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So from this we see that a limited view of prophecy and only focusing on the, the, the foreverness and the kingdom and compressing these things together and then seeing Jesus die on the cross, it's horrifying. It's just very troubling. They thought that he was the Christ. They thought he was going to last forever and now he's died and they're distraught. And then what do they do? What does Jesus do? How does he correct their poor theologies? He takes them back to the Word. He takes them back. They don't even know who he is. So he's not teaching from the authority of, look, I just rose from the dead. Pay attention, knuckleheads. You know, it's like, no, I'm going back to the Word. And I'm going to show you from the Word of God that everything that happened is exactly as it was supposed to happen. So he takes them back to the Word, going through Scripture, interpreting all the things that were supposed to happen to him, and proves that it has happened. He had to suffer. He had to die. Uh, Jesus does the same thing a few passages later to all the other disciples. Look at Luke 24, 44 through 46. The other disciples are distraught as well. Jesus shows up and he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So how does Jesus resolve the seemingly contradictory prophecies about him? He, he teaches the full plethora of prophecies to the disciples. And look, you've been focusing on this. You've been focusing on the glory. But the cross had to come before the glory. And this is exactly the way it was supposed to work out. So he takes them to school, and he definitely teaches them. There's a couple of longer passages we're going to use today, and I encourage you to stay with me on them. Uh, it does take a while, as we've noted here, for the disciples to understand. Jesus takes them to school, teaches them, opens their minds. There's a very intentional uh, effort here on, on Christ's behalf to open their thinking, to understand these, these things fully. Does it happen? And we absolutely see that it does. Look over at Acts chapter 2. So you fast forward from these distraught disciples who don't know which end is up and don't know what to do. Their Christ has been crucified. Then he's then now he's back to life and he's teaching them how how will we know if it worked? What is the fruit of Jesus teaching them? Well, we see it right here in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. We have the Pentecost sermon. So 50 days pent up after Passover. Uh, we have the next great big feast, the required feast of God. That all Jerusalem, all Israelites, sorry, have to come back to Jerusalem for. And so they all return. And on this day, we don't see 
a distraught Peter. We don't see him hiding. We don't see him see him crying and sad that the, the Messiah has died and our hopes and dreams have been bashed. No, we see him victorious and, and combining all these prophecies together in his sermon. So let's look at uh, look at verse 22. He stands up. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is, he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to be the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and is in his tomb with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So here you see the fruit of receiving the teaching of Christ. The disciples were distraught. They're on their road to Emmaus, distraught. The Savior, the one who they thought was a Christ, is now dead. Same thing. The disciples are hiding in the room. Uh, the Messiah is, is dead, and Christ resurrects, comes back, and teaches them. And we find out for 40 days he is with them on and off, and most likely teaching them these things. Because the next time we see the apostles appear. We see Peter standing up and showing this plethora of who Jesus, who the Messiah truly is. That yes, he, he proved himself with the signs. God validated him, substantiated, authenticated him. Man cannot do this on their own. All these supernatural signs. Uh, yet, it was God's plan all along to put him to death. They put him to death. He rose from the dead. And then you see these exaltation prophecies fulfilled. He now reigns supreme. Uh, he's at the right hand of God Almighty. He has received that kingdom. He is the, the king that will never die now. So you see the prophecies there in Samuel come to fruition, but it's not before the cross, it's after the cross, right? So this is the, what was perplexing them, now is fully resolved as Peter uh, teaches and preaches. Uh, the Messiah was sent by God, validated by God by signs, rejected by the people, suffered, died, rose, reigns, and has sent the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as proof. That's kind of this uh, Pentecostal sermon in a nutshell there. All right, let's move on to verse 35 in John chapter 12, verse 35 and 36. And I'm going to spend a lot on this passage because we've spoken of it and it will come up next week as well. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We've mentioned this. Again, I'll talk more on this next week because it comes up in the next passage we're going to be covering in uh, John chapter 12. Uh, Jesus, of course, is the light of the world, but also in this section he's talking about the shortness of the day and that his, his life is coming to an end. He is with them, but darkness is quickly coming. All right, so he's, he's, he's in this last week. Now he's in just the last few days of his life. 
what should they do? They should look to the light. They should believe in the light. And again, we'll hit that again next week. It continues on, verse 36, 37. I'm going to read down to verse 41. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many, uh, he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And here's also where we, we know, and we, from the other Gospels, we obviously know this. John only records seven signs of Jesus, seven miracles of Jesus, not counting the resurrection. Uh, but John says, hey, this is sufficient. Uh, I've recorded these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, that's that summary statement in John 20, 30, and 31. Uh, but there's more. There's obviously more miracles that John just did not think were needed to be recorded. Uh, according to him, there's not enough books on earth to record everything that Jesus did, but these are enough. But here he lets us know there were many other signs. Uh, did more signs matter? Did more people come to believe the more signs there were? And we find out that is not the case at all. You look at the great multiplication of bread and fish where around 20,000 people were fed. Uh, but in the end of that, in John chapter 6, we fast forward all the way down, and there's no one left except his disciples in the end. They reject his teaching. Uh, so we will see that constantly. The people, uh, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. Uh, and so, so this word spreads, but yet the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, they still want to just put him to death. They don't care. The blind man who can now see, they bring in the witnesses. Yep, he was our son. Yes, he was born blind. Uh, did Jesus do this? Yes. We don't, we don't believe. We reject it. So we see that over and over. It's not the multitude of signs that cause disbelief, that cause belief. Uh, it, it, it validates, substantiates this person is from God. We see the sheep, those who are true believers, will see that and acknowledge that. But we see the unbelievers get even harder. They get, their hearts become even harder. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The, the news gets back to the Pharisees. They don't even debate it. They don't even say, let's find out if he really did. They knew Lazarus was dead. They just say, what should we do? Kill him. And kill Lazarus too, by the way. Like, that the miracle caused them to get even harder hearts. That leads us right into where we're at here today. So look at verse 38. So the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, this passage, of course, comes from Isaiah as it's stated right here. But turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is a wonderful passage. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite teachers, it was his favorite chapter in the Bible. It has a wonderful book on it just called The Holiness of God. I highly recommend that book. But here in Isaiah chapter 6. And, and before we get there, let me just mention this. Uh, here in John, if you, if you hold your place there and hold your place in the, uh, Isaiah 6 and John chapter 12, in verse 38, the beginning quotation of Isaiah right there, that comes from Isaiah chapter 53. The next portion comes from Isaiah chapter 6, which is really fascinating, but you see his point. So if, even though Jesus done all these signs, all these miracles, the people are not believing. They're still in unbelief. They're still rejecting him. In verse 38, he pulls from Isaiah 53. What's interesting about Isaiah 53, it is, it is detail after detail of what is going to happen to the Messiah. It is the suffering servant chapter that leads to his, his, his uh, rejection by the Israelites, their hatred towards him, his death on a cross, and why he is going to die, and that he is going to die for the sins of many. Uh, John quotes the first couple of verses there. Uh, it says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So here he's saying, 
Isaiah 53, they're disbelieving, they're rejecting the Christ. Why are they rejecting the Christ? And then he pulls from Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, that's where we're going to find this next quotation in John chapter 12. Uh, look at Isaiah chapter 6. There's so much there. It's hard just to get that little portion. Look at chapter 6, verse, well, at least go through verse 1 through 10, just to set the story up here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, and high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house of house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Pause there for a moment. All right, now just to set up the what's going on here, we have the king Uzziah who is now dead. He's been reigning for around 50 years. He was their king. He is dead now. The nation is destroyed. Uh, Isaiah, though, sees the ultimate king, the king supreme. He sees Jesus. And we know that this is actually the Christ because of the words here in John. Uh, John lets us know that Isaiah, these are the words from Isaiah. But these, that the one Isaiah saw is Jesus Christ that is on the throne. Uh, we see several things here. We see uh, the, the, the trihagias, the three times holy is mentioned, an attribute of God mentioned three times. In Hebrew, it's the ultimate superlative. It doesn't get any higher than that. It's extremely rarely used, only double usually, but means something is greater to repeat it twice. Three is unheard of, but here, the angels, the seraphim, are in his presence, and they speak absolutely the truth about who Jesus is, who the Christ is, the Son of God. Holy, holy, holy. It's, a, it's, it's repeated three times. And then you have Isaiah who witnesses this and witnesses them saying this, and he immediately feels the guilt of his own lips. He says, ah, my lips, what am I even doing here? Uh, apparently, there's been, he's not holy. His lips are not holy to say such a thing, or even to be in the presence of this glory. Uh, so he doesn't know what to do. He can't fix himself. So what does God do? God solves the problem for him. The only way to have any sin removed is not man to God, it's God to man. And God provides a solution here for Isaiah. Now, Isaiah uh, is called, and look at verse 8. The voice says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. So here you have Isaiah, who is now authorized to be a spokesman, a prophet for God. He is given a message to speak to the people as well. And what does this remind you of? It reminds you of Jesus Christ. It's exactly, it is a shadow of what Christ's ministry is going to be like. Uh, Jesus is sent by God. He's given a message by God. He's authenticated by God, but yet the people are not listening. So you have something very similar happening over here in Isaiah 6 that's happening over here in John chapter 12 in the life of Jesus Christ. So John combines that, John, that Isaiah 53 with Isaiah 6 to say, look, people are not believing in the Messiah, but this is to fulfill Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 6, that even though hearing, they're not going to believe. And what's interesting is, is 
Isaiah was called to preach, called to be a prophet, and yet told by God to do so. But know this, you're not going to have Billy Graham crusades, all right? <laughs> There's not going to be thousands of people coming forward or anything like that. In fact, no one's going to believe, but you keep doing exactly what I told you to do anyway. And why is that? Here, the, the very message of hope that Isaiah proclaims is hardening the hearts even further. And that's exactly what we see happening to Jesus over here. Their hearts are hard, and yet the message that is coming is making them even harder. You look back to this passage, uh, the, the, the last part of 9 and 10. Tell them this, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, their eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So a very fascinating passage, and it's used multiple times. We're going to look at a couple other places used in the New Testament. Um, the more Jesus taught, the more Jesus showed them signs, the harder their hearts became. In both Isaiah and John's comparison, God has foreordained that the people will not hear or understand or see. There's this, this hardening of the people. From this, we'll find out that God is sovereign even over belief. All right? God is sovereign over all things. God is even sovereign over belief. Number two, people are still responsible for their sin and unbelief. These, both of these truths are, truths are present. Uh, number three, people are born naturally unbelievers, and only a supernatural act of God upon them can bring them about to a true belief and repentance. This is not something natural man can do on his own. Uh, John has already let us know in many places, and you'll see some of them in your discipleship today, but unless a man is born again, he cannot enter, see, even see the kingdom of God, much less enter into the kingdom of God. How can a man be born again? What do I need to do? What things do I need to put together? What choice do I need to make? And just, no, no, it's the Holy Spirit that does that. That's in a whole different category over here. The Spirit does that, all right? The Spirit regenerates. You don't regenerate yourself. You can't make your own dead soul alive. This is a work of God. So God is over these things. And as we look into this briefly today, always remember that there is no human that deserves grace. If you think you deserve grace, that is no longer grace. You don't deserve grace. No human ever deserves grace. What do we, we deserve? We deserve the wrath and curse of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve wrath. We deserve justice. So don't ever think that we deserve grace, or the people that, that he's speaking to here deserve grace and did not get that grace. Uh, look at a couple other places. These are equally hard passages, and this is, if this is new to you today, I highly encourage you to stay for discipleship and uh, work some of this out and think through all these things with us. But look over at Mark chapter 4, verse 10 through 12. Mark chapter 4, 10 through 12. And just in case we're, we're like, ah, oh, is this what is this really what John is meaning? Like he's saying the, the reason they did not believe is because God is hardening their hearts. Uh, let, let's, let's see. Here, Jesus himself quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is an equally hard passage, but it's equally teaching the same truth. So it helps you, as you're studying the word of God, if you're over in John 12 and say, I think this is what this is actually saying. I wonder if there's a good cross-reference to go to, because Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. You go over here to Mark chapter 4, and you see the same point being made by Jesus Christ himself. Now, oftentimes, you, 
I didn't know growing up, you'd hear people say, oh, you know, it's a preacher's job to tell stories while they preach because Jesus spoke in parables. And they'll try to make that 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 equal. And you just need to point that person who said such a thing to Mark chapter 4, verse 10 through 12. All right? Uh, and, and you'll hear that. You'll hear a lot of preachers just tell story after story after story and, uh, as, if, as if this is going to help. And they equate this to the parables that Jesus taught. But here Jesus gives the reason that he's speaking in parables. And note also, uh, again, you see this verse 11. Look, to you, the disciples and those, those gathered around in just those few, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. This is very similar to Peter's confession. Uh, when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And some said Jeremiah, the prophet. Some said Elijah. Some said John the Baptist rose from the dead. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say? To you, this has been revealed from God the Father. As, all right, so it is, it is supernatural. And it's, it's God turns on the light. God makes the soul come alive. He does this with a true knowledge of himself. And here, Jesus is saying to you, the secret has been given. To the others, they do not understand because it is in parables. Why? And then he gives the reason here. So they may remain hard-hearted. Uh, look one other, one other time. Uh, look over at Acts 28. Here Paul uses the same Isaiah chapter 6 passage again. And he uses it in the same context. John chapter, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 28, verse 23 through 27. So we find that the ministry of Isaiah is very similar to the ministry of Jesus. That he is called, he is by God, he is sent by God, he's often indicated by God, he has a message from God, but yet, John is saying they didn't believe. Why did they not believe? Because their hearts were hard. And that, that God is involved in this. Their, their heart, no one is, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one deserves grace. We're all naturally in ourselves, following Satan, following the sons of disobedience, uh, spiritually dead. That's who we are in and of ourselves. Unless God makes us alive, that's the way we will remain. Uh, and so God is involved in our, in even belief. Let's look at Acts 28, verse 23 through 27. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him, Paul, at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. So what do we find? The same, same, within the same context, this Isaiah 6 is being used over here in John 12, over here in Mark chapter 4 by Jesus, and then over here by the Apostle Paul, that it has to do with their hardening. They've heard the message. What was the result of the message? Their hearts became even harder. Their eyes, they've heard, but they can't perceive. They, they can't see, all right? So the same gospel that hardens some brings others to life. Uh, the same gospel that hardens some brings others to life. Jesus spoke. He did the same thing in the audiences. Uh, what was the difference, right? Uh, the, the many, the multitudes, the vast multitudes saw, but they, they didn't perceive it, right? They, they heard the same message, but it didn't resonate within them. Were some of them better choice makers than others? Is that what it comes down to? Like, ah, oh, these few just were smarter thinkers, right? Uh, these few were better choice makers. No, all that, all that is in the realm of works. Uh, it is God supernaturally moving upon some to open up the secrets of heaven, to open up their mind, to open up their eyes, to open up their ears, to see, to cause a, your dead soul to come to life 
all these signs that Jesus is doing are shadows of what he's actually doing in the heart of me, right? To open your eyes, to open your ears, to bring you back to life so you see Jesus for who he truly is. You acknowledge your sin. You know that only through Christ you, there is salvation. All that is a supernatural work of God. Do you believe in Jesus for your salvation? Absolutely you do. Do you pat yourself on the back after you believe in Jesus for your salvation? Absolutely you should not. <laughs> because God has brought you to believe. Uh, it is not that you believe uh, on and in and of yourself, only of yourself. You can't arrive there. Unless a man is born again, he can't even see these things. So that God regenerates you. You do believe. But God gets all the glory for that. There is no high-fiving in heaven saying, look what we did, Jesus. We did a good job, didn't we? No. He gets all the glory for it. So these are some tough passages. But one thing we know from this is that the message from God is going forth. There are two responses. Those are of the elect here and believe. Those who are not turn even harder. Then the same gospel that goes forth hardens some softens others. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16 says this. And you see that, that opposition, the same message going out, the two different results. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Same message going forth. Others hate it. Others love it. Others it brings life. Others it brings death. The same aroma of Christ is speaking about proclaiming the gospel here. Those four. And if you've ever proclaimed the gospel uh, to, to um, several people at once, you will see these things. Or ask Anthony or Jeff or other guys that go to the square and proclaim the gospel. And you will see the same aroma of Christ. If you're sitting there going, wow, that is beautiful. Great job. And others are spitting and cursing and yelling. Because it just, they hate it. It brings them even harder than they were before they arrived there and heard that message, right? Um, verse 42 through 43 of John chapter 12. You guys are doing a good job. We're going on a long journey today. Uh, we'll wrap up here in verse 42 and 43. John says, Nevertheless, many even of, even of the authorities believed in him, speaking of Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So here, just like the previous times, we see when John says belief, or they believed in him, it is good to read it in context. And here, we see that he does use the word believe. Oftentimes, we use this word, and it only means true salvation for us. John leaves it hanging. And then you have to kind of decide in the context, all right? So it says, nevertheless, meaning believe. So there was some kind of belief going on. What it does look like, uh, it is not going to be true belief. How do we know that? Well, we look just as it continues, they will not confess it. They won't say it. Why is that? Because they fear they're not going to receive the glory from man that they want. So out of fear of not receiving the glory from man, after fear of being kicked out of the synagogue. But if you're kicked out of the synagogue, you are blacklisted. This is huge. You are nobody. So out of fear of being kicked out of the synagogue and they're receiving the glory of man, they don't confess Jesus and truly express saving faith in him. So most likely we find that uh, this belief is not true belief. Though later we see Nicodemus who expresses true belief and and, uh, and Simon as well seems to express true belief as well. But here, it looks like those he's referring to, they don't want to sacrifice the temporary now, the glory of man. Uh, that's the ability that they have to believe in Christ. It reminds us of Mark 8, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. And so this is very indicative of one who is not saved. So if a person is ashamed of Jesus here, 
uh, is a very good strong sign that Jesus is not going to be welcoming them into heaven as well. A sign of a believer who is not a believer. Uh, you have been here through John, understand that. A sign of a believer who is not a believer is that he or she is unwilling to give up the honor they receive from other worldly people. They prefer the applause for the children of Satan more than they do the commendations of God. They supposedly believe, but their lives and actions reveal that they are ashamed of Jesus. Those who believe are but are ashamed will one day be revealed for who they truly are, and that is unbelievers. Uh, we're wrapping up John chapter 12 next week, and this is the last public uh, uh, speech of Jesus. And then we're going to transition over. Next week it's got a summary of his public ministry that John reports for us there. And then we're going to be getting into more of his time with his disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are God, that you are sovereign over all things, and that includes not just, just animals, not just the sun, not just the stars, uh, you and us. And that you are sovereign over all of life and all of things. And we acknowledge that and uh, help us to see that you are sovereign even over belief, even over salvation. Help us not to be offended by that, but help us be thankful for that. Because there, in and of ourselves, not one person would ever be saved. There's not anything one of us can do to right this sinking ship or to cause our dead souls to come alive. So we thank you uh, for salvation that has come through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit who brings us to awaken and to see the filth of our sin, to see the righteousness of, of you. And to see that Jesus is truly God, truly man. And it's through his death on the cross that our sins can be forgiven. Because he bears our sins. And it's through his resurrections from the dead, ascension into heaven, that we are attached to, that we are unified with, that we have victory over Satan and over death by, and that we have an inheritance in heaven. God, help us not to be ashamed of you in this life, in this world, in this dark world. But help us, like Paul, to not be ashamed, but acknowledge that the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. Help us to do what we are to do, to proclaim the gospel, to share that gospel. And help us to be even as bold as Isaiah, who even if not, no one believed, help us to still be obedient to get the gospel out. Because that is what you have commanded us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and continue.